All right, then turn, if you would, please, in your copies of the Scripture to Genesis chapter 15. Continuing the second part of what we started last Sunday afternoon, looking at Genesis chapter 15, at the, uh, the great drama of Abraham, Sarai, and Hagar and Ishmael. I've entitled the message, A Warning Against Being Double-Minded. And I'll explain what I mean by that. It's a reference to James chapter 1, verse 8. I'm using James chapter 1 as an interpretive aid for helping us understand what's going on and applying what's going on or the teaching of what's going on in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. Since uh, some of you were not here last week, I'm going to read the full text of Genesis 16, part of 21, and then part of what James tells us. So we have a bit of reading to do, but let's follow along. Genesis 16, we'll then jump ahead a little bit to Genesis 21, and then one more passage reading in James 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, he looked with contempt on her, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. 
And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day, on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And now I'm going to turn to James chapter 1. I'll be reading this time through verse 8. James 1, 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I've entitled the message this afternoon, A Warning Against Being Double-Minded. Now last Sunday afternoon, to help you recap, we read of the incident of the birth of Abram's affair, the birth of the beginning of that mess with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael, and all the drama that followed. We studied these events in Genesis 16 and 21, and our purpose as we looked at that time in the lives of Abraham and Sarai was to note the wavering character of their faith. God had declared and had enacted a covenant of redeeming grace with Abram and with Sarai through Abram. They believed God, but at this time, they thought they had reason to say, we certainly would say they had reason to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. For 10 years, they had wandered in the land of Canaan, never fully setting down roots in any place, never seeing any real material fulfillment of the covenant promises of God. At the end of that decade, their faith had been tested and was still being tried, and here they failed to fully commit themselves to trusting God. They worked out a scheme between themselves whereby a child might be born to Abraham through Sarai's servant Hagar, and Sarai would adopt the child as her own. At least that was the intent. They would help God 
fulfill his promises, so they thought. Things did not work out as they planned, and, and chaos ensued. As we looked at the subsequent chaos and the folly of unbelief as it unfolds in the lives of Abram and Sarai, I utilized the letter of James to help us with interpreting the situation. We noted that James has taught believers that faith, like a muscle, has to be exercised to be strengthened. James explained that God uses trial to produce steadfastness of belief and confidence in himself in the hearts of those in covenant with him. James explained that like Abram and Sarai, all believers should expect God to test their faith by bringing trials of various kinds to us at different times in our lives. He explained to us that when Abram and Sarai did not understand the apparent delay of God, when God's, the keeping of God's promises seemed that God was acting in a lax manner to them, when they didn't have the wisdom to properly interpret God's trying providence in their lives, they had only to go to him and ask for that wisdom which he would have undoubtedly given them. Now we finished last Sunday afternoon noting that James also warns us. He explains the chaos in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac even, which begins in this bungled, doubting response to a trial of God. In James 1, 6-8, we read the following warning, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now from this point forward, James begins to explain what's happened to the people of God, to Abram and to Sarai. He explains why everything spins out of control in terms of attitudes and emotions and existential consequences. And this is where we pick up this afternoon. We need to work to explore what James means when he speaks of the double-minded man or woman and how that ties in with doubt and the events of Genesis 16 and 21. Now, hopefully I've kind of caught you up very quickly. So let's begin with this double-mindedness. We need to understand that and and understand why we're being warned against it. What does it mean to be double-minded? Let's begin there. Were Abram and Sarai double-minded? To begin, let's note that the word double-minded in English is a compound word which reflects the compound nature of the original word in Greek found in James 1.8. To be double-minded is literally to be two-souled. Two-souled. That is to say that the double-minded person acts as if he or she has two different incompatible inner natures which are laboring to express themselves in opposition to each other simultaneously. In other words, such a person has emotions and desires and beliefs and expectations which are neither singular nor cohesive nor consistent. Now James describes this condition with a vivid metaphor. He says the double-souled person is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's an apt analogy. A wave has no consistent track or destination. Sometimes it goes one way, sometimes another. It has no consistent shape or volume. It can be agitated and enormous one moment. It can be placid and small and smooth at another moment. Now let's pause for a moment 
and simply apply that analogy as a lens to examine what we see in the lives of Abraham and Sarah at this time in Genesis 16. Are they double-souled? The clear answer is yes. They are. Look at the way their actions and their emotions seem to constantly flip repeatedly in the narrative. Let's look at double-mindedness then in Genesis 16 and 21, beginning with Sarai. At first, Sarai seems to be almost desperate in her plan to get a child, the child of promise, the child of the seed. She'll force, she thinks, God's timing by getting that child from Abram through Hagar if necessary. It's time to hurry up and get things done. Sarai has the best plan, she thinks, and expects Abram to agree with it. It's actually immoral, and it works in opposition to God's covenantal promise, as it turns out. It turns out that what will happen is it's going to produce another nation, which will be opposed to the nation that God intends to bring through Isaac. Almost immediately upon Hagar's conception of Ishmael, Sarah's, Sarai's attitude and her desire seems to now flip again. In verse 5, she now calls her plan ill-conceived, and in Verse 5 of chapter 16, she blames Abram, moving forward, she blames Abram for its success. Rightly recognizing it now, a little late to the game, as immoral, and assigning the blame for the bad outcome to Abram. Now in Genesis 16, we read that she said, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. The good that she once planned and expected to come to her out of this action is now declared to be wrong done against her. Her emotions go from feeling like a victim to being the creator of a victim in her harsh treatment of Hagar. All right, let's move on to Abram. Abram gets no pass. In the previous chapter, in Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, we read these words. And he, that is God, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. With these verses, we discover Abram receiving the covenantal promise and receiving it with faith. Now, in chapter 16, we discover Abram is not living in the strength of that faith. He believes Sarai, and he pursues her method of helping God fulfill covenant. Abram actively engages in Sarai's plan, and then when it fails to produce the righteousness of God, Abram passively disengages from the failure and turns the matter entirely over to Sarai to deal with. She's your problem. You deal with her. That's essentially his response. Now, some years later, when Isaac is born, we discover Abraham feasting in Genesis 21 in happy celebration of the birth of Isaac and God's fulfillment of covenantal promise. But then a few verses later, when he needs to support Isaac as the heir apparent and remove Ishmael from being a thorn in the side of Isaac, he's very displeased and unhappy that God's covenant be enforced in Isaac. It's a mess, isn't it? It's all over the place. Hagar's no different. Hagar's no different. In one moment, in chapter 16, she's elated and she's full of faith, declaring, you are a God of seeing. She believes, God promises, she believes God's promises regarding Ishmael enough to obey him and return to her abusive mistress. 
But then in chapter 21, we learn that Hagar is also double-souled when we find her weeping in the desert and declaring, let me not look on the death of the child. It's a mess. They're all over the place. Double-souled, back and forth, up and down, waves tossed by the wind. What's going on? Why this double-mindedness? Well, James helps us answer the question of what's going on with all of this contradictory and highly changeable behavior. James tells us it's produced by doubt and in the absence of wisdom. Let's read James 1, 5 through 8 one more time. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Unstable, meaning unfixed. Unfixed, not in a constant state, changing. In the face of trial, James is telling us that we are apt to, to be faced with challenges to our faith. We misinterpret providences. We discover that God's actions are inscrutable at times and that our wisdom and interpretation is very shallow indeed. He does not always reveal the counsel of his hidden will. And when those trials of faith are not only inscrutable but also uncomfortable, maybe painful, we discover a great deal of lack in ourselves. There's a poverty of understanding and steadfastness in us which times of trial tend to reveal. Now surely we see that in Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. James tells us that such a poverty of understanding and steadfastness may be remedied by wisdom from God. We may go to God to receive a right understanding of what we're experiencing in times of trial. How to respond to the testing of our faith in a godly way. That's wisdom. In the absence of that wisdom, because of our natural poverty, we'll respond foolishly. Like that wave tossed back and forth, unstable and full of doubt. James has explained that. And in verses 5 through 8, he tells us why Abram, Sarai, and Hagar didn't behave wisely. They doubted God. Doubt, I dare say, brethren, doubt is the singular most poisonous weapon in the arsenal of our enemy. Now, how can I say that? Because Paul tells us that we must quench the fiery darts of the devil with what? The shield of faith. As soon as Abram began doubting God's intention, as soon as Sarai failed to exercise confidence in the power of God to open her womb, when Hagar did not maintain a steadfast belief in God's promises, then folly and sin and the chaos of double-souled behavior ensued. This is what's happening. Here then is James's warning. Doubt will not only produce folly and sin and chaos in our souls, but it's self-perpetuating even. Doubt poisons our confidence in God. That poisoning is so thorough, so systemic in our souls, that once the fangs of doubt fasten upon us and our faith wavers, the poison goes to our heart and the inner man is weakened in all aspects. And now it's difficult to impossible to even pray a prayer of faith. 
that God would give wisdom and steadfastness of faith in the time of trial. It's impossible without the grace of Christ's Spirit at work in the regenerate heart. Doubting God's faithfulness and power and unchangeable covenantal love makes it impossible to go to the source of remedy for such doubt. Besides which God has said through, the, through James, I'll not hear such a prayer. Don't expect to receive anything when you pray in doubt. Notice in the passage when we read in Genesis 21, whose voice did God hear when Hagar and Ishmael were in the desert? It doesn't say, Hagar, I've heard your voice. I've heard the boy's voice. God didn't. He specifically says twice that he heard the boy's voice. He doesn't say, I heard Hagar's. Why? Because all her voice was expressing was doubt. It was a questioning of God's faithfulness. The failure of God's promises. Doubting God's faithfulness and power and unchangeable covenantal love makes it impossible to go to the source for remedy for such a doubt. That's why it's so dangerous. Once we engage in doubting our God, where do we go for help? Sarai went to her own wisdom, and look where that took her. Hagar trusted her senses, and look at the terror that plunged her into. Abram seems to have lost the strength of his faith, and look at the inconstancy that produced in all areas of his life. Once faith was weakened, where could they go for effectual help? Their souls had already ceased, or at least wavered, to look to God for help. The remedy then. What is the remedy to doubt in the believer? How do we avoid this horrible double-mindedness that we're being told about? Well, be, to begin, we're to remedy this with reminders to ourselves of God's covenantal faithfulness. It's no accident, brethren, that the, the following, that following all this chaos in chapter 16, we find in chapter 17, God meeting with Abraham and reestablishing covenant with him, re-engaging with him in the promises of covenant. God meets with Abram in chapter 17 and he even greatly expands on covenant with the man. Listen to what he says in Genesis 17, 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, this is again before Isaac, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Father of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The immediate and most powerful response to temptation to doubt God in the believer's mind and heart is to immediately, decisively remind ourselves of the promises of God. The covenant faithfulness of God and how he declares his steadfastness to his people. The lifeblood of faith 
is meditation on the covenant faithfulness of God. Reflecting on the promises of God is a powerful medicine for soul sickness in the form of worry and anxiety and doubt. Reminding ourselves of the verity and the immutability of our God, that His love is steadfast love. These forays into the character of our God, they bring us home when we find that we've wandered into the territory of doubt. We remind ourselves in terms of actual vocal confession. We actually open up our mouths and voice those promises. In Hebrews 10.23, we read these words. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There's the remedy to this double-souled wavering. Put your doubt to death by declaring the faithfulness of God to yourself. Do it with scripture. Do it out loud. Do it with hymns, if that's what works in your mind and your heart. Do it in prayer. Do it with the Psalms. Declare it to your brethren. Even boldly declare it to the world and Satan when you're tempted to doubt. Isn't that what Christ did when he was tempted by Satan? This is standing behind the shield of faith as Paul commands us to do. This is quenching the fiery darts of the wicked one with the shield of faith. And notice that I did say to do so prayerfully. James has told us to do this as well. We are to pray for wisdom. When we first sense doubt and distrust of God, beginning like a little seed to put down roots in our heart, maybe the root, the first root is anxiety. Maybe the second root is, is discomfort, lack of peace. Before that seed has grown into a tree, we need to quickly confess the sin in prayer and run to our Savior for cleansing. The sin of doubt, brethren, we have to remember the sin of doubt is a particularly offensive sin to our God. Time and time again, we know that the wrath of God broke out against Israel as she wandered in the desert because she refused to hold steadfast faith in her God, to trust him, to rely on him. Every time she doubted him, it was a public declaration that God was weak or capricious or untrustworthy, possibly unfaithful. It was ungrateful and untruthful. It went against the very nature of who God was and what he had declared himself to be in terms of covenantal love. For this reason, doubt is odious to our God. And doubt in one of his children, one whom he's called and saved and adopted, such doubt grieves our God. Brethren, Let's be ready to confess and repent of unfaithfulness as soon as we, we discover it in any form in our hearts or in the actions of our lives. Go to God in prayer, not only confessing that doubt, but also asking him with all confidence in his goodness and power to supply the wisdom we need to live in this world without doubt. Jesus told us that in the world we will have trouble. But then he eliminated all cause for doubt and worry when he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. We're to pray that God would give us a wise insight, a holy perspective, a trusting perspective, so that when we experience the tribulation of our present earthly existence, we'll see the loving, wise, and powerful hand of divine providence behind it. We'll see that and be content. Indeed, more than content. 
We should pray that we'll have such wisdom in times of trial to be able to perceive the blessing of God upon us in that trial and count it all joy. Now you want to talk about needing wisdom and finding a poverty of that wisdom in ourselves naturally. Try to count it all joy when you're really going through a hard trial. There are poverty of wisdom and insight and perspective into the divine providence of God. There it really, that poverty appears. Because we, we don't see what, makes, what ought to make us joyful. James says, go to the Lord in prayer and without doubting. Now all I have said of the remedy to double-mindedness is premised on catching doubt early before it produces double-souled chaos in us. So brethren, the final remedy that I would point out to you has to be watchfulness. Sanctified introspection, like a constant spiritual well check, that sanctified introspection is a necessity to our soul, to the life of our soul. We need to constantly be on guard against the world reaching into our minds and hearts and covertly planting a little seed of doubt in us. Like the enemy of the man in the parable, recall he had a field which he had sowed with wheat. The enemy of the man came at night and sowed the field with weeds. You remember that parable? Brethren, the seeds come in all the time. All the time. Satan's crafty, and our own hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. For that reason, we need to be constantly vigilant in the activities of prayer and the reading of the Word of God to help search out and illuminate, show us, those seeds of doubt that have been planted. How long, how long, I wonder, did Abram and Sarai steep in bitter or anxious doubt while it rooted in them? They had a decade. A decade while they waited for the child of promise leading up to Ishmael, and then more time after that. How long did they entertain thoughts and feelings of distrust, of impatience toward God, before those thoughts and feelings grew into mature doubt and produced the fruit of a chaotic and unrighteous second soul. Ten years is a long time for doubt to grow. Now, maybe for the sake of argument, it was only in, in the last year that it really became difficult. Who knows? But what if, while we're what-ifing, what if they had supported one another and they had been watchful together? What if together they had encouraged one another to guarded steadfastness? Maybe then they would have been better prepared to help one another, to guide one another in faithfulness when tried by doubt. Watch out for those times when your feelings and your desires outpace the providence of God. Be watchful with regard to your feelings in such times. Restrain them. It's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient. It's hard not to see physically the Lord Jesus reigning on his throne, is it not? Do we not long for that? And is that not a holy and sanctified zeal and yearning within us? It's hard to wait. Watch out for those times. Watch your feelings. Look for Satan to plant doubt and fear and anxiety in those, in those moments. As we read the account of the events of Genesis 16 and 21, isn't there sufficient evidence to indicate that Abram and Sarai and Hagar 
we're not very good at watching out for the tyranny of fallen human emotion. Brethren, be on guard, especially at those times when you sense that your sanctified waiting on God is strained and you feel that within yourself. When that happens, your soul is beginning to double. Be warned. Be vigilant. The cost of your faithfulness is a state of constant vigilance in which by the grace of God you must persevere. So God help us. Amen. This is, this is what I want to leave you with. It's not a very long sermon. It's very much to the point. We'll stop there.